Chapter 16 of The Web of the Golden Spider. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Web of the Golden Spider by Frederick Oren Bartlett. Chapter 16 The Priest Takes a Hand. How long this continued, this pressing forward following the spitting fire of his hot rifle, Wilson could not tell. From the first he could make nothing out of the choking confusion of it all, finding his satisfaction, his motive, his inspiration in the realization that he was adding the might of his being to the force which was pounding the men who had dared to touch this girl. He was drunk with this idea. He fought blindly, and with the spirit of his ancestors which ought long since to have been trained out of him. So foot by foot he fought his way on, and knew it not when brought to a standstill. Only when he found himself being pressed back with the mass did he realize that something had happened. Reinforcements had arrived to the enemy. But this meant only that they must fight the harder. Turning, he urged the men to stand fast. They obeyed for a moment, but the increased force was too many for them. They were steadily beaten back. For a second it looked as though they were doomed to annihilation, for once they were scattered among those narrow streets they would be shot down like dogs. At this point Wilson became conscious of the presence of a gaunt figure, dressed in a long black robe, bearing upon back and chest in gold embroidery the figure of a blazing sun. He stood in front of the men a second, gazing up at the sky. Even the enemy paused to watch him. Then, turning to the hill men who had wavered in the rear, he merely pointed his outstretched arm towards the enemy. The effect was instantaneous. They swept past the mercenaries, swept past Wilson, yelling and screaming like a horde of maniacs. They waved queer knives and spears, brandished rifles, and then, bending low, charged the frightened line of rifles before them. Wilson paused to look at this strange figure. He recognized him instantly as the priest of whom he had heard so much, and who had played in his own life of late so important a part. The man was standing stock still, smiling slightly. Then with some dignity he moved away, never even looking back, as confident of the result as though he were an instrument of fate. If he had seen the man he had struck down in the house of Sorez, he gave no evidence of it. And once again Wilson found himself moving on steadily towards the old palace. The men from the hills swept everything from before them, the superstitious enemy being driven as much by their fear as by the force of the attack. Behind them came the mercenaries to the very gates of the palace. Here they were checked by a large oaken door. From the windows either side of this, puffs of smoke, fire-pierced, darted viciously. The men behind Wilson answered, but their bullets only flattened against the granite surface of the structure. He realized that this was to be the center of the struggle. They must carry this at any cost. He heard oaths in the rear and turned to see Stubbs whipping on three men who were dragging the small Gatling gun brought from the ship. It looked like a toy. 
As Stubbs stooped to adjust it, Wilson saw one of the men dart from the line and disappear into the open doorway of a house to the right. Stubbs saw it too, and now, suddenly turning, put two shots at the fellow's heels. Then he turned to the gun with a warning to the others. But he never finished it. He sank to the street. Danbury rushed up from somewhere and bent over him, but Stubbs was already getting to his feet. "'Damned thing only glanced,' he growled, putting his hand to his head. "'But it came from behind.' As he faced the men for a second, one man slunk back into the rear. Wilson raised his revolver, but Stubbs pushed it to one side. "'Later,' he said. The gun was wheeled into place, and it became the center for all the firing from the palace. In a few seconds it was pouring a steady stream of lead into the oaken door and splintering the lock into a hundred pieces. With a howl, the men saw the barrier fall and pressed on. Danbury led them, but halfway he fell. Forty men swarmed over him. Once within the palace walls, Wilson and Stubbs found their hands full. They realized as they charged through the outer guardroom and down the dark, oak-furnished hall that this gang at their heels would be difficult to control within the intricate mazes of this old building but their attention was soon taken from this by a volley from the antechamber to the right, which opened into the old throne room. The men rallied well and followed at their heels as they pressed through the door. They found here some twenty men. Wilson had emptied his revolver and found no time in which to reload. He hurled himself upon the first man he saw, and the two fell to the floor where they tumbled about like small boys in a street fight. They kicked and squirmed and reached for each other's throats until they rolled into the anteroom where they were left alone to fight it out. Wilson made his feet, and the other followed as nimbly as a cat. Then the two faced each other. The humor of the situation steadied Wilson for a moment. Shot after shot was ringing through the old building, men fighting for their lives with modern rifles, and yet here he stood driven back to a savage, elemental contest with bare fists in a room built a century before. It was almost as though he had suddenly been thrust out of the present into the past. But the struggle was none the less serious. His opponent rushed, and Wilson met him with a blow which landed between the eyes. It staggered him. Wilson closed with him, but he felt a pair of strong arms tightening about the small of his back. In spite of all he could do, he felt himself break. He fell. The fellow had his throat in a second. He twisted and squirmed, but to no purpose. He tried a dozen old wrestling tricks but the fingers only tightened the firmer. Cheek against cheek the two lay, and the fingers with fierce zeal sank deeper and deeper into Wilson's throat. He strained his breast in the attempt to catch a single breath. He saw the stuccoed ceiling above him slowly blur and fade. The man's weight pressed with cruel insistence until it seemed as though he were supporting the whole building. He heard his deep gulping breathing, 
felt his hot breath against his neck. The situation grew maddening because of his helplessness, then terrifying. Was he going to die here in an anteroom at the hands of this common soldier? Was he going to be strangled like a clerk at the hands of a footpad? Was the end coming here, within perhaps a hundred yards of Joe? He threw every ounce in him into a final effort to throw off this demon. The fellow, with legs wide apart, remained immovable, save spasmodically to take a tighter grip. The sounds were growing far away. Then he heard his name called, and knew that Stubbs was looking for him. This gave him a new lease of life. It was almost as good as a long breath. But he couldn't answer, could make no sound to indicate where he was. The call came again from almost beside the door. Then he saw Stubbs glance in among the shadows and move off again. He kicked weakly at the floor. Then he heaved his shoulders with a strength newborn in him, and the fellow's tired fingers weakened, weakened for so long as he could take one full breath. But before he could utter the shout, the merciless fingers had found their grip once more. The man on top of him, now half-crazed, snapped at his ear like a dog. Then he pressed one knee into the pit of Wilson's stomach with grueling pain. He was becoming desperate with the resistance of this thing beneath him. Once again Stubbs appeared at the door. Wilson raised his leg and brought it down sharply. Stubbs jumped at the sound and looked in more closely. He saw the two forms. Then he bent swiftly and brought the butt of his revolver down sharply on the fellow's temple. What had been a man suddenly became nothing but a limp bundle of bones. Wilson threw him off without the slightest effort. Then he rolled over and devoted himself to the business of drinking in air, great gulps of it, choking over it as a famished man will food. "'Are you hurt anywhere?' No. Can you stand up? In a minute. Pretty nigh the rocks that time. He had a grip like iron. Better keep out in the open sea where you can be seen. Wilson struggled up, and except for a biting pain in his throat, soon felt himself again. Where's Danbury? he asked. Dunno. But we can't stop to look for him. That gang has gone wild. Guess we've pretty nigh cleaned out the place, and now they are running free. Won't Otaballo reach here soon? Can't tell. If he doesn't, he won't find much left but the walls. I'm going after them and see what I can do. Better keep your eyes open. They'll shoot you in a minute. Maybe so, maybe not. He led the way along an intricate series of corridors to a broad flight of stairs. Above there was a noise like a riot. If I can get him into one room, a room with a lock on it, he growled. As they hurried along, Wilson caught glimpses of massive furniture, gilded mirrors, costly damask hangings brought over three hundred years before when this was the most extravagant country on the face of the earth. 
they took the broad stairs two at a time and had almost reached the top when Wilson stopped as though he had been seized by the shoulder. For, as distinctly as he had heard Stubbs a moment ago, he heard Joe call his name. He listened intently for a repetition. From the rooms beyond he heard the scurrying of heavy feet, hoarse shouting, and the tumble of overturned furniture. That was all. And yet that other call still rang in his ears and echoed through his brain. Furthermore, it had been distinct enough to give him a sense of direction. It came from below. He hesitated only a second at thought of leaving Stubbs, but this other summons was too imperative to be neglected even for him. He turned and leaped down the stairs to the lower floor. In some way he must find the prison and in some other way get the keys and go through those cells. If he could find some member of the palace force, this would be simple. He wandered from one room to another, but stumbled only over dead men. The wounded had crawled out of sight, and the others had fled. A medley of rooms opened from the long halls, and Wilson ran from one of these to another. Finally, in one, he caught a glimpse of a skulking figure, some underling who had evidently returned to steal. In a second he was after him. The chase led through a half-dozen chambers, but he kept at the fellow's heels like a hound after a fox. He cornered him at the end of a passageway and pinned him against the wall. In the little Spanish he had picked up, Wilson managed to make the fellow understand that he wished to find his way to the prison. But the effect of this was disastrous, for the man crumbled in his hands sinking weak-kneed to the floor where he began to beg for mercy. "'It's not for you. I have friends there I wish to free.' "'For the love of God, go not near them. It is death down there.' "'Up!' cried Wilson, snatching him to his feet. "'Lead the way, or I shoot.' He placed the cold muzzle of his revolver against the nape of the fellow's neck and drew a shriek from him. "'No, no! Do not shoot! But do not go there!' "'Not another word! On, quickly!' "'I do not know where! I swear I do not know, Signor!' But hearing the sharp click of the weapon as Wilson cocked it, he led the way. They passed the length of several corridors which brought them to an open courtyard on the further side of which lay a low granite building connected with the palace proper by a series of other small buildings. The fellow pointed to an open door. "'In there, senor, in there.' "'Go on, then.' "'But the senor is not going to take me in there. I pray.' See, I pray on my knees, not. He slumped again like a whipped dog, and Wilson in disgust, and not then understanding his fear, kicked him to his feet. The fellow trembled like one with the ague. His cheeks were ashen, his eyes wide and startled. One would have thought he was on his way to his execution. Half pushed by Wilson, he entered the door to what was evidently an outer guard room, for it contained only a few rough benches, an overturned table, 
which in falling had scattered about a pack of greasy cards and a package of tobacco. Out of this opened another door set in solid masonry, and this too stood ajar as though all the guards had suddenly deserted their posts, as doubtless they had at the first sound of firing. Still forcing his guide ahead, they went through this door into a smaller room, and here Wilson made a thorough search for keys, but without result. It was, of course, possible that below he might still find a sentry or turnkey, but even if he did not, he ought at least to be able to determine definitely whether or not she were here. Then he would return with men enough to tear the walls down if necessary. They passed through an oak and iron door out of this room and down a flight of stone steps, which took them into the first of the damp under-passageways leading directly to the dungeons themselves. The air was heavy with moisture and foul odors. It seemed more like a vault for the dead than a house of the living. Wilson had found and lighted a lantern, and this threw the feeblest of rays ahead. Before him his prisoner fumbled along close to the wall, glancing back at every step to make sure his captor was at his heels. So they came to a second corridor, running in both directions at right angles from that in which they stood. He remained very still for a moment, in the hope that he might once more hear the voice which would give him some hint of which way to turn. But the only sound that greeted him was the scratch of tiny feet as a big rat scurried by. He closed his eyes and concentrated his thought upon her. He had heard that so people had communicated with one another, and he himself had had proof enough, if it were true that she was here. But he found it impossible to concentrate his thoughts in this place, even to keep his eyes closed. Then the silence was pierced by a shriek, the sweat-starting, nerve-wracked cry of a man in awful pain. It was not an appeal for mercy or a cry for assistance, but just a naked yell wrung from a throat grown big-veined in the agony of torture. Wilson could think of only one thing the rats. He had a vision of them springing at some poor devil's throat after he had become too weak to fight them off. The horrible damp air muffled the cry instantly. He heard an oath from his guide, and the next second the fellow flew past him like a madman and vanished from sight toward the outer door. For a second Wilson was tempted to follow. The thought of Joe turned him instantly. He leaped to the left from where the cry had come, holding the lantern above his head. His feet slipped on the slimy ooze covering the clay floors, but by following close to the wall he managed to keep his feet. So he came to an open door. Within he saw dimly two figures, one apparently bending over the other which lay prostrate. Pushing in, he thrust the lantern closer to them. He had one awful glimpse of a passion-distorted face. It was the priest. It sent a chill the length of him. He dropped the lantern and shot blindly at the form which hurled itself upon him with the flash of a knife. Wilson felt a slight sting upon his shoulder. 
the priest's knife had missed him by the thickness of his shirt. He closed upon the skinny form and reached for his throat. The struggle was brief. The other was as a child before his own young strength. The two fell to the floor, but Wilson got to his feet in an instant, and picking up the other, bodily hurled him against the wall. For a second he tasted revenge, tingled with the satisfaction of returning that blow in the dark. The priest dropped back like a stunned rat. The light in the overturned lantern was still flickering. Snatching it up, he thrust it before the eyes of the man who now lay groaning in the aftermath of the agony to which he had been subjected. The lantern almost dropped from his trembling fingers as he recognized in the face distorted with pain Don Sorez. In a flash he realized that the priest had another and stronger reason for joining this expedition than mere revenge for his people. Doubtless, by a while of some sort, he had caused the arrest of these two, and then had led the attack upon the prison for the sake of getting this man as completely within his power as he had thought him now to be. The torture was for the purpose of forcing the secret of the hiding place of the image. For a second Wilson felt almost pity for the man who lay stretched out before him. He must have suffered terribly. But he wasted little thought upon this. The girl was still to be located. Wilson saw his eyes open. He stooped. "'Can you hear?' he asked. "'Is the girl in this place?' The thin lips moved, but there was no distinct response. "'Make an effort. Tell me, and I will get you out of here, too.' The lips fluttered as though Sorez was spurred by this promise to a supreme effort. "'The key. He has it. "'Who?' Wilson followed the eyes and saw the brass thing lying near the priest. He turned again to Sorez. "'Can you tell me anything about where she is? Is she near you?' "'I don't know.' There was nothing for it but to open each door in order. It was, of course, likely that the two had been thrust into nearby cells, but had these been filled she might have been carried to the very end of the passageway. He fitted the ponderous brass thing into the first lock. It took a man's strength to turn the rusty and clumsy bolt, but it finally yielded. Again it took a man's strength to throw open the door upon its rusted hinges. A half-savage thing staggered to the threshold and faced him with strange jabbering. Its face and hands were cruelly lacerated, its eyes bulging, its tattered remnants of clothes foul. Wilson faced it a second and then stepped back to let it wander aimlessly on down the corridors. The cold sweat started from his brow. Supposing Joe had gone mad? If the dark, the slime, the rats could do this to a man, what would they not do to a woman? He knew her. She would fight bravely and long. There would be no whimpering, no hysterics, but even so there would be a point where her woman's strength would fail. 
and all the while she might be calling for him and wondering why he did not come. But he was coming. He was. He forced the key into the next door and turned another creaking lock. And once again, as the door opened, he saw that a thing not more than half-human lay within. Only this time it crouched in a far corner, laughing horribly to itself. It glared at him like some animal. He couldn't let such a thing as that out. It would haunt him the rest of his life. It was better that it should laugh on so until it died. He closed the door, throwing against it all his strength with sudden horror. God, he might go mad himself before he found her. At the end of a dozen cells and a dozen such sights, he worked in a frenzy. The prison now rang to the shrieking and the laughter of those who wandered free, and those who, still half-sane but savage, fought with their fellows, too weak to do harm. The farther he went, the more hopeless seemed the task, and the more fiercely he worked. He began to sicken from the odors and the dampness. Finally, the bit of metal stuck in one of the locks so fast that he could not remove it. He twisted it to the right and to the left until his numbed fingers were upon the point of breaking. In a panic of fear he twisted his handkerchief in the handle and, throwing all his weight upon it, tried to force it out. Then he inserted the muzzle of his revolver in the key handle and, using this for a lever, tried to turn it either way. It was in vain. It held as firmly as though it had been welded into the lock. In a rage he pounded and kicked at the door. Then he checked himself. If ever he hoped to finish his task, he must work slowly and calmly. With his back to the door, he rested for so long a time as a man might count five hundred. He breathed slowly and deeply with his eyes closed. Then he turned and began slowly to work the key back and forth, in and out. It fell from the lock. He reinserted it, and after a few light manipulations, turned it carefully to the right. The bolt snapped back. He opened the door. Within, all was dark. The cell seemed empty. In fact, he was about to close the door and pass on to the next cell when he detected a slight movement in the corner. He entered cautiously and threw his light in that direction. Something, a woman, sat bolt upright watching him as one might watch a vision. He moved straight forward and when within two feet paused, his heart leaping to his throat, his hand grown so weak that he dropped the lantern. "'Joe!' he gasped tremblingly, still doubting his own senses. "'David, you... you came!' He moved forward, arms outstretched, half fearing she would vanish. End of chapter 16 Recording by Roger Moline